This episode is brought to you by Snapple. Want to know another Snapple fact? The first hot air balloon passengers were a sheep, a duck, and a rooster. Ridiculous. Check out Snapple.com to find ridiculously flavored Snapple near you. Hello and welcome to Adjust Your Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Arpen. This episode is is about reality and facing all of its 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 grimness, its complexity, and uh, we're gonna cover it with um, three documentaries. Uh, one of which is opening this weekend. Lo and behold, reveries of a connected world, directed by Werner Herzog, about the internet. Yes. And, uh, that's the full title, by the way. You got to say all those words. <laughs> directed by Werner Herzog about the internet. Uh, <laughs> exactly. That's the subtitle. Subtitle. <laughs> um, but yeah, that's opening this weekend. Mm. And uh, first of all, are you, are, you, are you a big fan of Mr. Herzog's documentaries? Uh, of of what I've seen, you know, the the sort of um, the last ten or fifteen years, Grizzly Man is fantastic. You yeah. know, like it, that's I feel like considered at least a critical classic. Um, or a classic by critics, um, you know, and then whoever has seen it, I've never heard anybody really say bad things about that movie for good reason. It's, it's a fascinating, it's a fantastic documentary. And yeah, um, yeah his other stuff like Encounters at the End of the World, um, I believe we reviewed Into the Abyss a couple years ago, which, yeah. which all- is absent of his narration, which I think has become like a big sort of draw for a lot of people because his like his narration is so specific to him mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it becomes an almost like punchline a lot of times yeah and i think for good reason with that that one in particular into the abyss because it was such a serious subject matter it was yeah. something he really because i think inherently audiences now find Werner herzog just funny you know yeah. just he starts talking and he says things in Lo and Behold, the, this new film, that are just hilarious. Like, right from the start, he comments oh, on, yeah, this disgusting hallway. How does he... How does he, it... he refers to it as hideous corridor. The corridors here look repulsive. And yet, this one leads to some sort of a shrine reconstructed years later when its importance had sunk in. <laughs> like, from then on, I was just sort of, like, set. I was like, I, well, I got my... My great takeaway Werner Herzog line describing a hallway as a hideous corridor. <laughs> exactly. And uh, and so, like, I, I knew I was in, you know, his good, capable hands. And, you know, the documentary is, it's, it's covering something that, like, is so ubiquitous and such a part and of our, like, everyday life, our moment-to-moment life, you know, the internet, mm-hmm. that it's so broad and so, like, you know, almost just be like it's so entrenched in our lives that it's hard to see how much it affects Mm. so it's impossible in this like 90 minute film for him to do an all-encompassing sort of glimpse of the internet he touches on its origin and then like just different kind of segments that kind of paint a sort of broad picture of the experience of how we're connected to each other what are the some of the drawbacks what are like as we become more dependent on it what's the potential like downfall if like you know the internet collapses and we're not able to use it as we're so hyper reliant on it Mm. and it's like it's it's an it's an interesting portrait 
albeit a limited one because you just he just didn't have the time to develop a, a huge expanse of a sort of commentary and coverage of the internet as gigantic and impossible as it is. Right. I mean, it would be impossible to really try to encompass everything. It would have to be like an ongoing, never ending documentary. I mean, yeah, that, that would be <laughs> exactly. what the ti- Yeah. The never ending story. That would be the true title of that documentary. Yeah. It would be yeah, crossed out underneath hideous corridors as like potential titles, alternate <laughs> titles for this. Exactly. But yeah. And what you get instead is you just get Herzog's little brief, you know, take on that. And, his personality shines through and it, it makes you laugh. It, it shows that he is still, you know, a deeply humane director. Uh, there are segments of that you hinted at where they show sort of negative fallout that comes from mm-hmm. the, the wild west of the internet and like what um, the anonymity, the anonymity that people can have on the internet, the possible ugliness that can seep out from that. Like he, he, he co- does what he can to cover as many facets uh, as possible, but really I feel like it's just Werner Herzog's musings on this thing at the moment. And I'd say it, like, it works as that. Um, anybody expecting something deeper, more far-reaching, um, I think you'd almost in- always be uh, disappointed with this subject. Yeah. But uh, yeah, you know, for a Werner Herzog joint, it's, it's, a, it's a solid one. And I'm, I'm glad that he can... Um, <clears throat> You know he's a he's a strong enough filmmaker, smart enough to know that what which subject, which story demands his personality to seep in more and more, and when it doesn't, like with something like Into the Abyss, he's he's uh he's smart and he knows when to uh like use his personality to the benefit of the film, and that's the only film we're really going to talk about that's in theaters. Uh, if you have a chance, like go see it in theaters. It'll be on VOD as well. But I feel like um, the bigger discussion here is. Uh, looking at some of these other films that uh, have just been playing all summer, essentially uh, on VOD. One of them got a a brief theatrical release earlier this summer. And um, that film is tickled, which is just Mm -hmm. uh, a documentary. I feel like we'll touch on some, but to me, the real big, the big film to talk about, I keep saying that. Yeah. Let's touch tickled really quick before. Let's do it. And to the, the meteor subject, which would be, Oh, Made in America, the O.J. Simpson. What's the subtitle of that one? Well, it's O.J. colon Made in America. Made in America. Okay. Um, <clears throat> yeah, it's interesting because like all three films kind of like are are good representations of like a spectrum of documentary filmmaking, mm-hmm. and I think that like Tickled is this is this one that's like become you know popularized not it you know terribly recently but it's like this mystery kind of documentary that like through the course of it uh certain things reveal themselves and it almost has a a kind of like thriller arc to it you know movies like catfish or like even like true crime documentaries that don't set out to sort of like resolve or unravel a mystery still wind up doing so like thin blue line errol morris's documentary from the 80s Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you know that I don't know if they resolved anything, but Serial, that uh, podcast that was on uh, NPR and stuff like that, it seems like a, a pretty like current fixation people have mm-hmm. with this like this mystery arc to a, a documentary. And it's not like the, as fascinating as that can be, um, especially with this one, is such an unusual entry point with this uh, New Zealand reporter uncovering on the internet these videos of competitive tickling and then like all of a sudden this like kind of nefarious seeming underworld that 
produces it yeah. and how it, it becomes like menacing and threatening to him and his partner who are, you know, like interested in making a documentary about it. And then it just, they just go down this rabbit hole of like, who's connected with it? Why is it so, why is it so secretive, so menacing? And it just becomes interesting, like immediately like lurid and fascinating. There's something about it though, that like, because it's, it's following this trajectory um, in, in almost like a conventional sense, it's still reality playing out. So there's nothing that can potentially be conventional about it. Mm-hmm. You know, we mm-hmm. should mention, mention also the jinx. That was like another one that it was Definitely. an HBO documentary, which and did you catch? I, I loved, yeah, the jinx was great. Yeah. And I, so we like, should also mention, like, uh, sorry, Netflix has the, um, making a murderer, making a murderer. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So it seems like this is the, the right time for, you know, audiences, because they, they seem to be kind of clamoring for it. This kind of like true crime, weird sort of pulsing mystery that they get to the bottom of by the end of it. Um, so I think this is a like a, a strong representation of that. Mm-hmm. Um, there's just something that's like missing uh, a, a perspective, I feel like, that's like that, you know, as we get into OJ Made in America, like, there is there's nothing but perspective in that documentary and like a, a viewpoint and a representation of the complexity of reality and existing in this country that like as satisfying moment to moment as tickled is it just sort of leaves me kind of like huh well i don't know what i just watched like it just felt like a, a, a strange thriller like that was set in reality right like it was super uh, the, immersive and engaging as it was happening yeah t- but yet tickled is sort of um it's pretty like thin you know in the end like yeah. I, I felt like as much as i enjoyed the ride as well in watching that film is by the end i felt like man this is when the story's just starting to get interesting and you could really if you wanted to pursue pursue it beyond the sort of wow this is a weird story because ultimately that's all tickled is it's sort of like wow that was a that was a weird kind of sad story by the end you know like this 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 man that's uncovered in it um yeah and i think um you could fault the the herzog film for that as well is uh lo and behold is that they both are good at what they set out to do but that's kind of it it's fleeting and it's it's entertaining in the moment, but it's not really going to leave you with much else beyond like either, you know, oh, that's a Herzog's perspective on this thing. And then tickled is just sort of this crazy, enjoyable ride in the moment. Right. But yeah, if we, if we want to swing over to OJ made in America, that's therein lies the big difference. And also just shows what else can be done uh, in yeah. nonfiction filmmaking. I told him, OJ, you're breaking the laws of God. One day, everybody's gonna know everything that you've done, man. If you're a black man in America, you're fighting our war. Who's in a man? Where you gonna run to? The reality of black America and white America. Two totally separate world. For us, O.J. was colorless. And it's seven and a half hours. It's 
broken up in five parts, you know, each about an hour and a half. I mean, it is extensive and also important. It is commenting on story, a story that essentially happened 20 years ago. But the beautiful thing of uh, the one of the many like just staggering achievements in this documentary is that it doesn't start in 1996. Like, no, it reaches all the way back. Oh, and like it becomes this like portrait of of not of celebrity of all these things at once of this country of an idealism that's like inevitable that it gets soured of like of just yeah like racial tension of like the the inevitability of certain tragedies you know like mm-hmm. it was it's an incredible like it, it it's just so incredibly layered and like and complicated that like a, a movie like tickled as accomplished as it is in t- in terms of like how well it's made it still just has a flatness to being like man wasn't that fucked up yeah. and it's just like it doesn't really challenge your perspective which like every i feel like every moment it challenges your perspective it causes you to see the viewpoint of someone who on like paper you may vehemently disagree with you know, because the 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 filmmaker talks to like, you know, a broad scope of people, mm. from Mark Furman, who was one of the lead investigators, like from the murder, which is like, you know, it's at the halfway point of the documentary, which starts initially with OJ's upbringing, mm. and then transitions into his like his rise as an incredible athlete, and like that's one thing. It's like you know, you and I are both like pretty young when the the OJ Simpson stuff happened. So like, you know, you're, you and my, I don't, I don't know your experience with him, but like I knew him primarily from the naked gun movies. Mm, So he was just kind of a benign kind of celebrity figure. And this, what this does is like, it gives you like a gigantic sense of his talent and his charm and how huge he was. Like he was a huge personality Mm -hmm. and he was a huge personality that was like developing and sort of rising to stardom in such an incredibly volatile time in our country for racial tension, which we're right back at again. Um, and so like he, he became this like symbol of like his, his whole like kind of angle was to kind of separate, become like bigger than his like racial identity, just become like to become accepted by, white America and to transcend the, the whole race card and just become OJ, like an, an identity. But the, what's so like beautiful about the documentary is that you can't disentangle things. Yeah. Like you can't, it's all connected and it's all like entwined and complicated and a, a, like impossible to completely unravel that like these things in Los Angeles, like this like history of volatility between african-americans and the police like these things were adding up to a sort of like fixed inescapable tragedy and a boiling point and like it's it does such a beautiful job of like illustrating like all the complexities that you know seem like almost impossible to get right in a documentary which doesn't have the benefit of a huge amount of time which like this this does because it's aired on television. It's seven and a half hours, but even that, it felt so brisk oh and like God, yes. it like just burns right by, and like you can't stop watching it basically because it's like 
it's it's a it's a level of attentiveness and immersion that is so rare now with like with how we get information. It's so just like tidbitted out and so headline grabby and so just like unsubstantial that like when you finally feel informed in a way that sort of presents the brutal complexity of the world we're in, it feels like oh like why can everything be like this? Right. You know? like, yeah. Yeah. I, I feel like after watching this, it was like, I, I feel dumb every time I go on Facebook now and just like a headline or like a friend's com- You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. that or reading, I was doing research on the movie and trying to find interviews with the director, Ezra Edelman, who, I mean, for me is a discovery and someone I can't wait to follow to see what yeah. he does next. He's done a lot of these 30 for 30 ESPN documentaries or a, a few, Um, and he produced a documentary I had seen called cutie and the boxer, which is excellent. It was nominated for an Oscar a couple of years ago. He did that one. Well, he, he produced it, but he was a a major factor in it getting made. Um, so yeah. Uh, but this movie just makes me think like, why did everything is so, it made me angry that I looked up. Um, I I was reading like the 50 craziest, uh, quotes from OJ made in America. It was like, even even the discourse on this extremely complex movie that, that argues isn't as smart as the, it can't be, you know, and you know, it's a, how can part of the yet another impressive thing of this movie is how staggeringly smart it was put together. Like how intelligent the Ezra Edelman and any of the people involved in making this clearly are like, it's, it would be more intimidating if it wasn't so, entertaining to watch and just yeah. viscerally enjoyable just and engaging like moment to moment. Yeah. This, this movie to me just feels like it's, it's like every story it's, it's like, it feels like a story about LA in the similar yeah. way to like the way the wire is about Baltimore or, mm-hmm. you know, other David Simon projects. Treme is about new Orleans. You know, it's like, it's, it feels like this grand American story and I think one of the things that gets me most excited about it, why, why I found it so great is it's like, this is the kind of thing that would have been, you know, championed and would have been a four hour, you know, intermission in between theatrical release. This would have been like the grand tragedy that would have played in theaters. Or it also is like reading a really good novel, like a great book you just cannot put down. Yeah. And yet, I it it's evidence of how much our media is changing. It's like without TV being in the position that it is to produce a lot of exciting um, shows, content, whatever you want to call it. Like it's picking up the slack that we've lost from theaters and movies in a lot of ways. Yeah. And while that it's it's to me clear evidence of the change that is happening. I'm I can't help but be celebratory of that when. You know, we we don't we don't want to belabor um, cynicism or negativity on like how bad we felt movies have been lately, or just how unengaged we've been with movies right now, new movies. Yeah. Um. So I just want to more instead focus on like you know at least we have someone and a, a mechanism to distribute this film because for me this is just easily it's like one of the best films I've seen all year. It's like. It's it's gonna be on my top ten. It qualifies as far as I'm concerned. It's just yeah. It did yeah. get a brief theatrical release, like right, right. I think like one week in both New York and L.A. or something like that. Right. So it could qualify as like I think an Oscar contender, probably for documentary. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, there was like two intermissions or something like that. It played at the it played in Pasadena here, which I didn't get to see it. Okay. 
but it also played in in New York, and I think played at a film festival as well, uh, or maybe more more than one. But yeah, it's just so like it, it's just so accomplished, and like you said, so it's just so rare that you get something this immersive and this this just like complicated and like engaging and thrilling and like and tragic and like and you know funny at times you know like a lot of the talking head interviews like end up being like genuinely like hilarious at times and it's just such a sordid story and so like so complicated and it just it what it does is that instead of like having this this reality that you're sort of like sort of narrowing down through an algorithm of like only seeing headlines that kind of appeal and uh, apply to you you know, here's this thing that like kind of turns you on your head and causes you to look differently at like, you know, uh, a huge historical moment that we felt we were aware of, you know, to some extent. But it's like it gives you such a rich context to understand it so much deeper and to like really, really like look, look at people who you're like, how could you have felt that way? And then like it gives you their perspective and it gives you their reasoning. And you're like, oh, OK. Like I, I still don't agree with you, but it's like, how the fuck would I be in your shoes? Like, how would I be any different? You know? Yeah. I mean, when I started watching this, it, it, all those thoughts, even to my young self, I I must, I think it was 15 when this trial was happening. Mm -hmm. And I remember getting to see the verdict and parts of the trial in like social studies class. Like teachers would stop class to let you watch this. My history teacher brought in the TV so we could watch uh, the verdict. Right. And with my little, uh, you know, my little teenager bubble that I was living in, like all I could think of was like, based on what I had heard and, um, evidence that seemed pretty clear like all i could think about was how and i held on to this until watching this movie is like how how does he get away with the murder like how could that right. possibly happen and what this documentary just yet another thing the documentary shows and lays out is like you do understand why jurors and the yeah. jurors in that trial came to feel like he could be not guilty or they, they hadn't proved, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt. And it's like all these things you need to remember. And it's so easy to just reduce things. Oh, like, like even on another end, like Mark Furman was known, he became known as the racist cop in the case. Yeah. And to see how it's all like laid out in this documentary, how all these things went down. It's like, I don't know, man. Like I had empathy for that guy, but yet he was a villain in the media. It was so easy yeah, to the, hate that guy. Yeah, this ruined his life, and it's just like he—he he is kind of outspoken as a, a racist person. So, like you know, I mean, to some extent, like he ruins his own life. But the, what the documentary does that's so like beautiful is that like it doesn't and it doesn't indict him. Right. If anything, he allows he indicts himself if there is sort of any indictment to make, you know, and he just, they, they give him the space to like speak his truth and his like reasoning. And it doesn't angle it to where you're manipulated into feeling a certain way about him. It just like, it gives him a platform to be like, well, tell us, like, tell us what, like, tell us what your truth is. Tell us what, like how you truly see this experience. And like, you, you see like, Oh, I see how he makes up his mind. You know what I mean? And it's yeah. just, and there is empathy for like his life being completely decimated basically, you know, but it's just like, it, it doesn't, there isn't, there's a, an intense amount of 
perspective in this documentary in terms of like what to present as like the broad picture of everything, mm. but it does leave the complexity up to you and not in a way that you feel lost because it gives you so much information to sort of help you navigate how impossible it feels at times. It's always easier to just be like, I don't agree with that. Shut it out of my mind, you know? Yeah, and, especially now. Right. It's And we're only encouraged more and more now by technology. And it's the thing that I... I I feel like I, it saddens me a little bit of like discourse is dying a lot of the time. Yeah. And this movie is like an argument for that of like, like, you know, I don't know if you, it makes me think of like, if you ever are like, say a friend or something or someone, you know, in your life is going through a tough time, something horrible happens to them. And if you just take the time to like sit and listen with that person as they can just tell you what's going on with them, it's amazing what you can come to understand as opposed to being like, I wonder, or I think these, you know, like I feel like it's a lot of the time we don't want to take time out from our day to do that much effort thinking about someone else. Yeah. There's too much to take into consideration. So we, we start narrowing how we look at things. Right. There's just like an, an overload of things to consider that we start like defensively narrowing our perspective and like and simplifying things to this like unrealistic extent. Yeah. And and I feel like OJ, I'm not going to say like it's such an extreme word to call him like he is a monster. Or, you know, he got away with this stuff. Like, does this movie make me feel even more certain that he got he killed Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman? Absolutely. But the movie isn't telling you that. And right. I think that's part of what you were getting at earlier of like, it doesn't hang anyone out to dry. It's like, it's all about listening. And they didn't get any interviews with OJ. I, I had read that they tried to get yeah. some in prison interviews, but um, he never responded. And, you know, that's, that would have been an amazing like perspective to get, but yet I feel like the movie works better just the assembly of all the footage they have and all of the other talking heads they have. So you, you, you still get a very complete picture, but this movie still even made me feel empathy for OJ Simpson. Like he's not a monster. He's just, he's just a goddamn person that most likely is a murderer. You know, like in my eyes, he, he did it, I'd say, but yet there's so much more like to just call him a murderer would be to misunderstand and really not take away anything else from this movie. There's, there is so much more to take away. That is like, I don't know. God makes you a better person. It teaches you to just like learn, empathize, try to understand where someone is coming from. And you're no doubt going to understand how, how things happen a little bit better. You know, like it, it's it's amazing the amount of like clarity this movie can give you while also it's just muddy. It's all gray and like there's no clear answers to things outright given to you even though, you know, it it I, I'm I'm spouting off contradictions right now and it's 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 evidence that that's the movie. The movie lives in those contradictions. Essentially it's an argument for saying you can have both feelings. You can think OJ is totally guilty of this, but also like feel for the guy a little bit, given what happened in his life, like how he, you know, got to this point. It's, it's, um, an amazing like arc, um, an amazing tragic arc for him and for like this country in general, like this, this, this movie just so much helps you understand like how we even got to this point that we're in, in 2016, you know, 20 years later after the verdict, I feel like, 
very little has changed. You know, race relations might be even like for every progress and thing we've moved forward in. It's like it just feels like two or three steps backward. Um, well, yeah, I, th- I think that as like it, it's more acknowledged that, you know, like the the institutions of racism, with the exception of prison and the prison system and the prison industrial complex, like there's a sort of outspoken the systems and machinery of society are for, in theory, uh, like being against racism. Like, you know, whereas before, like it was enforced by by government and whatnot. And now that like we're decades into like society acknowledging that it's wrong, you're seeing as like, you know, people, racist people's needs aren't being met by the institutions that they've depended on to keep like, you know, their racial agenda in check. Mm -hmm. You see the ugly truth of it come out even more, you know, like you see the sort of helplessness of people who do have true xenophobic tendencies. You see how nakedly inarticulate it is. You Mm -hmm. see just like, it just reveals itself more ugly as opposed to being sort of like entrenched in, uh, you know, court cases and stuff like that. It hides itself in the sort of, there's the banality of evil idea that it just like hides itself in like how, who gets, who gets like higher prison sentences, who gets job opportunities, like all that stuff, like as it hopefully breaks down or continues to break down, um, the ugliness of it sort of becomes more exposed. Like, even though we're supposed to be several decades down the line from the civil rights effort, but it's just like the shadow of like the atrocity of racism in this country. Like, I think people just get like, people are like, uh, assume we should be beyond it. It's like, we're never going to be beyond it. Like that's ridiculous. And so narrow minded and so naive. I don't even think, I think naive is too nice a word actually. Mm. Like, I think it's just like, I think it's, uh, ignorant, the carelessly lazy to assume that we can transcend something that's been such a horrific part of our history. Right. And I mean, and that is so exemplified in, in the OJ, the character in this film and his arc is like, he's a guy that, was all about I'm OJ. I'm not black. Don't think of me as black. I'm OJ yeah. Simpson. He he was like an early example of like branding and understanding your brand. You know, like it, he's like a he should be a case study for marketing students in a lot of ways. Like yeah. the way he built his celebrity and transcended race and all those things. Transcended his his social uh, status when he was you know raised in a very poor part of. Um, was it San Francisco? I think like in Southern yeah, California area. Yeah. yeah. Like, sort of, I think originally like military barracks or something that got turned into public housing. Right. And is God, it's just like, it, it's just, there's so much to glean from this film. I don't know. Yeah. Like I, 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 it's, and it has been out for, for a number of months. It came out in June. Uh, it was available and still is on ESPN. If you can watch it on their website. Um, if you have any cable subscribe uh, subscription, you just need to like punch that in. But it it is also for a little bit. It's been on Hulu Plus now, I believe, streaming yeah. on there. And um, you know, a- as we said early in the show, is like when if you if you you know side with me and Joe, if you if you've been agreeing with us in like, or if you just see think it's been sort of a weak year for movies or last few months, it's like 
there's so much, there is so much content out there that usually there's something you can find. But I mean, OJ made in America, like whether it was a weak summer or a strong summer, I think like this movie would have captured my, um, you know, fascination either way. And it's good to see that it's done well, given that like only a few months before it came out, there was the like TV movie version of it with actors, mm-hmm. essentially like Cuba Gooden Jr. playing OJ and Sarah Paulson playing Marsha Clark and so on. I think John Travolta played Ron, uh, Ron Shapiro. Um, yeah. I mean, I actually heard that was pretty good. It looked like a really terrible uh, movie from the previous mm-hmm. I've seen, but I heard that was good too. It's just, there's, there's so much that still resonates about this story and for good reason, but um, really, if you just feel like there hasn't been much capturing, you know, your, your, your interest, uh, in, in movies right now, like, even though this is seven and a half hours, uh, I'd say this is one of the, one of the films of the year and something like it's, it's available, like seek it out is what I say. Yeah. Get lost in it. Nothing ever changes, man. 50 years from now, we're all going to be dead and there'll be new people standing here drinking beer, eating pizza, bitching and moaning about the price of Oreos. And they won't even know we were ever here. Yo, you're getting me all upset here. Hold up. Wait a minute. Now just wait. Last episode, Joe, you announced your... Hold your, up. Your hold up. Yeah, your hold up pick uh, being the 1996. Um, I don't know if this was intended by you, but 1996 was the year that the verdict for the O.J. Simpson trial... Uh, it's anniversary year. It came yeah. 20 years ago now, so... Yeah, we're we're all about 1996, I guess, and the the meat of this show, and it's um, Richard Linklater's, I would say, mostly forgotten, you know, film. Uh, yeah, Suburbia. Um, so yeah, t- tell us, uh, tell what what were you thinking in terms of choosing this one, Joe? Well, it was it was a movie that like, uh, you know, came out. And I think it like it rolled out gradually. Like I think it maybe have premiered at one of the film festivals in '96, and then like over the course of a few months, rolled out into theaters into 1997. And uh, I went to drove up to Portland to see it at your theater, Cinema 21, um, from Eugene. And Richard Linklater was a was a director I was like into at that point. Even had seen Days and Confused in the theater and. Um, you know, just was excited about it. And Eric Bogosian as like a sort of beloved writer uh, that like whose solo performance shows I was really into. Really loved talk radio as a play and a film, mm. mostly as a film when I was a kid. But uh, he's the the screenwriter. Of, he, it's based on his play, Suburbia. And he's like just a, just a total like bleakly comedic like brutal writer just like and and there was like something about the 90s and I know I touched on this last episode when I was introducing this as my hold up pick was that there was like a luxury of being able to sort of like rant and complain and now there's there's such a level of volatility and such a level of anger and like vitriol like that's just constantly in our in our news feeds in our um in our like social media like feed it's just like and you know ranging from like incredibly well put and articulate to like it really disturbingly inarticulate and you know like it's just but it's a lot of like hatred and like people being like people claiming they're fed up and they they want their you know they want what whatever they consider america back and you know like who no matter what side of the fence you're on you know and so like the 90s felt like a time where people were just like, there was a grumpiness 
that was an answer you sought out as opposed to uh, oversaturation of anger that you were just like tired of dealing with, which feels like now there's like a point of exhaustion. And so like that, that level of anger and that cynicism and that pessimism was like, it was almost like air. Cause it was just like, there was, there was a sense that something full of shit was going on in the nineties. And there was like a, a, a grumpiness, but we had the luxury to sort of like have that be our entertainment have it sort of filter into the the college rock and the you know the grunge music from the early 90s and just like there's just some some shit starting kind of quality that now like when i watch the movie now it feels like fuck this is really like not not that it's any less valid but there are plenty of things that date this movie really beautifully <laughs> but that it's just like it's hard to take cuz it's such a brutal assessment of marginalization in our culture of like suburbia being this like dismal flat expanse of nothingness and like and how we're lost in it even though this was something that we sought out as a country as like an ideal you know and so like here's here's this movie so my experience with it going to see it at cinema 21 being fucking blown away by it i was just like oh yeah they're pissed I want more <laughs> of this and it took a while to actually make its way down to eugene but immediately i like saw it again took my girlfriend to it at the time and uh and just like proceeded to like you know like get the play memorize like my favorite monologues from it and you know I w- eventually when i went to college i would like audition with those monologues and so it was just like it was a relatively new ensemble of people. I didn't know who Giovanni Ribisi was. He's the lead of the film. Nikki Might be Pat. my favorite performance of his that I've seen, man. He's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like it was really he's that this film is pretty much why I like will always be interested in what he does. Yeah. Was the sort of starting point, my entry point to him as an actor. Mm. Uh Parker Posey and Nikki Cat, I was familiar with, but like Nikki Cat is outstanding in this movie. Oh, yeah. Uh I didn't know Steve Zahn really before this. Mm-hmm. So it's like, it's a great nineties indie movie ensemble. Um, but yeah, like it was just like this time watching it and it might be just cause I'm like stressed out in general and like, but like it was really, it do- doesn't mean I didn't enjoy the movie, but it was like, fuck, this is really like, this is hard. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> the level of negativity and of like a frustration, even if it's for comedic effect, it's it's interesting to sort of like touch back with it and like just partially getting older. You're like, well, how do I use like this perspective anymore? You right, know, right? And did that did that make the movie feel lesser in your estimation, or was it not even about that? Re- I, it wasn't even necessarily about that. It was just about like a level of like, would I like had this come out now? Which like try to picture what this movie would be like now because oh it's essentially God. about yeah. a group of friends <laughs> hanging out outside of a convenience store for two hours while their friend uh, who has become wildly successful comes back to town to sort of like disrupts their sense of like complacency basically. Mm. So it takes place in one location for the most part because it was based on a play, which, you know, all is set in one location. Mm. And like, what would that movie be like now? I was just like watching them and like, granted it's a play. So like a lot of the, 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 the the action is going to be delivered through dialogue through like through talking through interacting and so like maybe people are never this maybe they they don't pontificate this much like in real life <laughs> but like thinking about like what okay if this was kids now 
how much would they actually be talking to each other? You know what I mean? <laughs> and how much would they be staring at their phones or Instagramming themselves against, you know, like the brick wall? And I was just like, ah, so like maybe this, I, I wonder, like in addition to not knowing how to picture it now, if I saw it now, I might just be a little overwhelmed by by its like negativity. Right. You know, Mm -hmm. which I I think is something that probably this movie didn't do well. I think it was when it came out. Right. It was I don't know if it was a bomb because it was clearly a low budget film. But it was it was tailored towards the the art house cinemas. But it like it's got a production value. Right. It looks good. And like and Warner Brothers put it out, I believe. Yeah, I think I think maybe it was like, yeah, I can't remember the company that put it out initially, but I think Warner Brothers like picked it up eventually. Okay. Okay. But it's got like a, a good kind of like fuzzy college rock soundtrack. Um, Sonic, really, Sonic Youth, I think, did some of the score bits. Yeah, yeah, and that works really well, you know, to me. And like really elegant camera work, you know, lots of like, you know, lots of lots of moving camera stuff that yeah. was like really well handled. And uh, yeah, like it looks good, but I I don't know how much they were sort of intending it to do well. But like you know, this was also a time when even if it was considered not a success, like that's fine. So it's, it's okay that we make a movie that doesn't like break records, you know, it like could still right. exist in some, some smaller fashion and have that be okay. Right. Yeah. Well, there, there's, therein lies one huge difference. Like I, I think what you're saying just leads me to believe like this movie doesn't get made today. It doesn't yeah. exist. Something this angry can't be, it, I don't think it would even get whatever minimal amount of, um, accessibility it had when it came out in, in 1996. I think it'd be relegated. It, it would play festivals, maybe. It would have a, yeah. a lot yeah. less known people in it. Right. It would be a lot rougher looking, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, there is like an elegance to the movie, despite how crass some of the characters are, despite how like, you know, like, uh, you know, like, frank the movie is like there there it is a like really pretty and you know kind of a grimly grimly beautiful movie um i don't know how did how did you feel about it like having never seen it yeah well for me i i it was really it was beyond just you know it being like oh great i've seen another link later film you know i'd love i want to yeah. see all his films like it felt good to catch up on that right it was i guess i was sort of nervous that I was going to find out why this movie sort of came and went. Like, it's not a movie that you hear about when people. No, it's interesting. Right. It's like such a good cast. Right. Right. And Linklater was already, you know, a name indie film director. One of the major, you know, voices from that late eighties, early nineties surge. But this is that period of where he sort of, like he kind of falls off the map a little bit or people kind of stop caring about him in the movie world a little bit because there's this and Newton boys, I think soon after, which was like a bigger budgeted thing. And um, he told me when I interviewed him uh, on this podcast uh, for when boyhood came out, he had mentioned that Newton boys was always like the one movie of his that he wishes more people had seen. Like he felt like he got that movie, right. And Uh in some ways looking at suburbia, I kind of thought he, would have said suburbia to now that I've seen it because very little people, like we said, no, very few people even talk or remember about this movie, but I think it, it still feels like, okay. Yeah. It has the obvious, uh, uh, markers of its era of being made in the mid nineties. Sure. Clothing, all the way people talk, you know, the, the, 
the the you know like jargon and stuff that they use but it it does hold up in terms of what it's the anger being involved and like there actually seems to be much more well it's it's just that alone the stuff you've talked about the anger and the the dialogue the the rantiness of it does fit nowadays and it would almost fit in another example of kind of what we talked about with OJ Made in America where i feel like if more people were able to view something like this today like they might actually open up the discourse a little bit more like yeah. there's there's length given for every person to have their say in this movie and yeah if this movie were made today maybe most people are just looking at their phones and 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 taking pictures of themselves it, and, and, yeah. but i think that there's an interesting way to depict that because i think like Definitely. you know there's there's a danger of us coming off as like weirdly ageist kind of like millennial phobes you right. know if like we're we're just constantly indicting young people for instagramming their existence away but like you know there's there is an interesting kind of thorough way to investigate youth as they confront what feels like a dead end which is just as relevant today you know, and like, I think, you know, you're right that there, there was like, it, it, maybe it's, he distances himself from this movie or doesn't reference it because he didn't write it. Right. But because there's so much given in terms of like perspective of each character to have their moment, there's just like a, a beautifully thoroughness to like, to what's kind of an, a depressing glimpse at like a modern wasteland, you know, yeah, where it's yeah. like these promising people who are just kind of like squandering away their time. And like, on top of that, on top of being kind of like feeling like I'm, I'm getting older and wincing at some of the anger, like the movie's fucking funny. It like, is really, there's like a lot, like Steve Zahn is incredible as like the sort of comedic idiot throughout. He He's the guy that you, like as a movie character, you can laugh, right? But if you're yeah. friends with that kind of guy in life, you're pissed it, that you're friends with this person. Like, why are you hanging out with this person? <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, he's great. But yeah, it's just it's it's interesting to to look at something that's like because it to me after I picked it is when I sort of realized like oh this is like as much as he's connecting dazed and confused with everybody wants some like there is a connection between Days to Confuse and, and Suburbia. Because yep. it's like, the, that's like where all of the idealism died, you know, it was in like the 90s where like the, the sort of the fantasy that everybody was sort of caught up in that maybe have like been birthed again after the 2000s, you know, where it's like we needed to regenerate a fantasy that was, seemed like it was only capable in the 70s and 80s. And it's just like that that level of sort of kind of blind idealism and fantasy generation seemed to just like torpedo in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And like this movie is about like that kind of sad eyed hard look at that and, and, and the sort of like bottom scraping cynicism of it all. Well, and, and that element, those elements of the film are also fascinating in the context of Richard Linklater's career and overall style as a filmmaker. Yeah. He is not a cynical filmmaker. He is not a negative. He rarely focuses on negative or anger. He usually finds some weird bit of hopefulness in his sort of everyday hangout type atmosphere. And that's another thing where like this movie should be a triple feature with Days and Confused to this and then to Everybody Wants Them because you'd have 
you'd have like, you know, Days and Confused, there's some characters that talk about how, you know, the 70s suck. I hope the 80s are great. And there's sort of like an ironic humor to that. Yeah. With that perspective. But then you get the real depressing reality of now, 1995 or six, when Suburbia comes out. And then he, he reverts back to his own kind of era in the early 80s with Everybody Wants Them. It's this weird, like, the, the movies do speak together. And they and it, it, it was another realization of, of seeing this is, like, how much this does feel like the other end of the spectrum from what he was doing with Days and Confused. It is another Hangout movie. It's not yeah. a period piece, but it's, like, weird how you can see how things have changed in those in those decades since. And I think it's really fascinating as a rare type of film from Linklater because the the only other one that's coming to mind immediately or maybe two films of his that have that will deal with some negative or cynicism is like maybe Tape, which is a really low budget, yeah. you know, hotel movie. It's 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 a negative focusing movie, but for good reasons considering what the subject matter is. And then also Scanner a Scanner Darkly has some real darkness to it, you know, some yeah. real cynicism built into that story. But um, it's a pretty rare thing for him to do that. And I, I found it's also it- like there's vignettes in Slacker mm-hmm. and then in Waking Life that are like pretty dark. Like he touches like he's capable of like people articulating a despair like pretty well. Like, you know, Julie Delpy's character in the before movies like Ooh, yeah, she, you know, and like in, and they're their sort of struggle in the last one and before midnight, like right. he, he doesn't, he's not a whimsical filmmaker at all, but like, I think he probably just is a genuinely positive person in life. And like that radiates from his films, even though he's able to sort of accurately assess like a, a despair and an anguish in like being alive, you know? Yeah. yeah that, you know, you make a good point because maybe this movie has helped me realize a little bit more that he is unafraid to tackle those stuff. And it has been weaved through a lot of his films, but like this one is just so full on. It's like that, it's that deep dive into the negativity and, and yeah. just approaching it and dealing with it. Um, but I did also want to say, like, I agree with you that this movie is very funny. And for me, right from the start of like these tracking shots of just of a suburban wasteland, a very, you know, Places, I think, if anybody lives in America, you've seen, you know, yeah. suburban landscapes being built up. Everything looks the same. And the the shot as it zeroes in in a garage and you see Giovanni Ribisi in a tent in his garage is great. Do you know who the lead actress is? She has the spiky hair. She's Giovanni Ribisi's girlfriend. His girlfriend? Yeah. Amy Carey. Okay. She's someone I don't recognize. Um, and I really, like, thought she was pretty great in this movie. But there's, a, there's just this awesome shot of um, – it's it's first in her bedroom and then it cuts to her mother sitting on her bed watching TV and the image of a newer TV on, on top of an old box yes, TV, that old fifties, sixties era TV where it was like big furniture. And it's like, well, it doesn't work anymore, but this thing's so goddamn heavy that I thought that that was like the most potent image in the movie. And it, it makes me want to also bring up that like Linklater isn't a director that is talked about his visuals very often because yeah. he might come off like he's very straightforward meat and potatoes. And there's all these other things going on in his movies. But I do think that is a really potent and a very funny image that just immediately kind of hooked me into this movie because I've seen that before, you know, as instant relatability, but also like it just says so much without ever making a direct comment, you know, like someone isn't saying like, why don't you get rid of that TV mom? Like there's none of that. It's just an image 
very funny. And I just think it like it's so potent and it, it set me up for this movie and opened me up for it right away. And I, I like, you know, as negative and ranty as it is, I, I found this movie to be kind of a little bit of a gem, you know, lost from from an from an era where movies like this kind of came out, uh, seemed in hindsight to come about on a more regular basis, you know, made. Yeah. That that sensibility was definitely a lot more common. And, you know, we were living in the sort of time of like the indie film boom where it was like, you know, a lot of these films were getting nominated for Oscars. This one wasn't. But like, you know, like they they had a credibility and a draw that was like, you know, like pretty exciting at the time. And like this this one definitely shared shared space in those art houses one that you you work at currently and uh that scene that you reference with the the two tvs stacked on top of each other got a laugh every time i saw it ah that's great man yeah it's such just such a great great image yeah and you know i i would say i'd love it if some listeners check out the movie um that listen to this podcast is real it'd be great um i guess i would just say like try to look beyond that feel that instant feeling we all have of like wow this is the 90s you know like the clothes and all that stuff and just it Except that something being dated doesn't mean it's not valuable still, or that it isn't still speaking to what anything that might be going on now. Yeah, um, I think it's just an important thing to remember because I think it's really easy to fall into looking at movies without looking at the context with which they gave came in. And I think that context feels like a big theme on this episode because OJ Made in America is all about context and yeah. it's proof that when you give something a little bit of time or a lot of time, you know, many years of time, you can get at the heart of everybody's perspectives. The actual, you can just get deeper into the story in a much more complete and satisfying way. And um, it is kind of interesting in this weird way how we we stumble on this. But Suburbia spoke to the my experience of watching OJ in a similar way of just like these things are talking about now. You know, OJ is doing it because it's out right now. But like suburbia films like that still can do that. And um, that's valuable. So, you know, just look at things in their context. Yeah, (laughs) I'm glad you liked it. I did, man. This is uh, one of my favorites uh, that I've got to catch up with uh, from from your choices of hold up. Like it's this is one of the reasons I love this. This segment, man. It's very fun. Well, uh, why don't we wrap up uh, episode 136 of Adjust Your Tracking. You can find this podcast over at theplaylist.net. It's a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, so you can find all our current episodes there and on iTunes under the Playlist Podcast. And you can also find us on SoundCloud, and we have an Adjust Your Tracking page on Facebook. Email us at adjustyourtracking at gmail.com. What else is there, Joe? Uh, Twitter at adjust your track. Um, find out when we drop episodes. If you're not already subscribing, which you should be, like Eric said, um, and we'll we'll link you to articles and headlines and nothing of any real substance. But um, <laughs> you just, you know what know what new shit's being made by people we like. That's right. That's right. And um, we need to thank Rodrigo Perez, editor and chief editor and chief creator of the playlist, for uh, all his efforts keeping this podcast going for us and helping out <clears throat> behind the scenes. We need to thank our man, other man behind the scenes, Drew Walner, with all the help he's he's yes. given us. He's been a big help this week for me personally. Yeah, uh, car issues, right? Yep, yep. Um, Drew's but also, just there he, to help us. 
Yeah, he's, he's, he's a great voice of reason. He also <clears throat> watched Suburbia before either one of us caught up with it. He is uh, he's our most verdant follower, and we love him for that. Thank you, Drew, for all that and all the help. You know, you, you call me and Joe in times of, uh, of fear, you know, when yeah. we don't know where else to turn. Drew's our superhero, so... Uh, yeah, we thank you, Drew, for all your efforts there, and I wouldn't—I'd uh, be failing at uh, my co-hosting duties if I didn't thank you, Joe, for for talking with me. So thanks, man. Thanks, Eric. Thanks.